Uh, everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy up here, Vlad. We have managed to make it to episode 71, where we are going to finish our conversation on the modern enterprise architecture. And we'd like to welcome our very special guest, Brandon Zink of, of Vertec. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you uh, so much for taking your time and joining us today, Brandon. I wanted to ask you before we dive into the enterprise architecture, what is your background? How did you get into manufacturing automation and what it is that you are doing today? So my background is in more traditional computer science. Um, I actually I actually accidentally stumbled onto working on PLCs in an internship, uh, mainly Beckoff PLCs, and wow. ended up turning that into a job working as an industrial programmer. Um, my area of focus in college and post-college has been baseball analytics. You know, I may not be working with baseball data anymore, but I'm working with, you know, industrial data. Um, so what I do on a day-to-day -day basis is all things data for enterprise applications, whether that be gathering data, providing data, storing data, analyzing it, changing it. Um, that tends to be my specialty. Um, so that comes in a lot of different ways. So that's what I do day-to-day -day now. I have to watch baseball on the side. And I think that's, so, that's extremely interesting. Uh, Dave, uh, I guess you want to jump in? Vlad, I was going to go ahead and make a baseball comment because mm -hmm. this is probably the only time on the show a, a baseball <laughs> analytics comment uh, will be appropriate in uh, in the history of the show. And I know that if I don't jump in and, and have the side conversation with Brandon, it will be gone forever. So uh, so, so Brandon uh, talking about baseball analytics. Uh, so an exceptionally popular book turned into movie Moneyball uh, that came out that kind of spurned most of what I think of as modern day kind of baseball analytics and what the Oakland A's um, we're, we're doing. I, I think that it's a very similar time in industrial and in manufacturing where we in theory have all of this data, but so much of the, so many of the decisions that we make are still kind of that gut feeling. Uh, the old scout sitting in a room looking at a chalkboard saying, we like this guy, we don't like this guy, let's go pay this person, I don't know, half a billion dollars because we like them. And, and you know, they, they hit a bunch of home runs two years ago. So, so we think that they're worth, you know, half a billion dollars. So I think that it, it's a very similar time to the, the industrial and, and the manufacturing data and what we can possibly do with that to what we saw in baseball 30 years ago. Um, have you also kind of, I guess, as you think of manufacturing data and what happened during the, the money ball through now, through the sabermetrics and beyond eras of baseball, would you, do you see kind of similar parallelisms? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think baseball's kind of gone, again, through the lens of baseball. It's gone through two transformations. The original was the money wall one you were talking about, where all this data has existed for a long time, right? We have all this industrial data. It's not new to be storing and collecting that data and providing it. Mm -hmm. It's finding the right ways to take that data and make decisions off of it. So what values are we looking at? How are we trending or using or analyzing or comparing data? But then the second step of that is, what data do we not have yet, mm -hmm. right? What do we need to find? In baseball, that's measuring the spin of a ball as it flies through the air and, you know, new technologies allow us to measure that. In manufacturing, that could go a whole number of different directions, but it's, it's that next step of kind of finding, here's what we have, here's what we can do with it. What's going to be the next thing that's going to unlock more information or better decision-making that we don't have today or can't even come up with today? And so part of that is, I think it's very analogous to baseball and finding that. 
Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting, you know, I was going to say a very interesting background. And I think, again, we've probably all seen Moneyball. And I think the way to leverage data was extremely interesting there. And some examples, I think they even said there's guys that throw funny and that's why, you know, they're like they're worthless. And there's tons of, mm-hmm. I would say, parallels that can be made to manufacturing. But before, before we dive deeper into the data aspect, Brendan, I wanted to ask you because I think it's not always that we get someone with a software background coming on to our conversations. You know, we see a lot of automation techs, automation engineers, uh, managers, and they typically come in through the instrumentation side and then uh, migrate to the, I would say like the higher levels of the automation pyramid. But I wanted to get your perspective on what it was like for you, you know, learning back off. Like, were there any like specific challenges that you remember or was it pretty easy to pick up by having a more traditional computer science background? And I would say like, what were maybe the challenges uh, that made be, uh, made it a little bit difficult than uh, traditional software? Yeah, so one of the biggest was uh, ladder logic. Okay. <laughs> you know, computer science is all it's in the PLC term, the structured text. And that is, you know, everything is written in code and everything is written through a let's say a process manner, right? You run your code and it runs all the way through and then it's done until the next time you do it. Versus PLCs tend to run on that cyclical nature and you're running on those cycles and that code is sort of always running through there. Um, but then, yeah, learning ladder logic was definitely a, uh, a, a pretty steep learning curve. And it very much started out as like, here's my block that just has a bunch of structured text in it that I'm technically calling via ladder logic and then learning from there, if here's how you actually use it. Um, which I mean, kind of continues its way up through all of industrial automation is a lot of times it's not someone with a computer science background who's looking at your code or trying to figure out how an application works. And so building things that way, someone who's not, you know, who's coming from an electrical engineering background can come in and isn't spending six months in a coding boot camp just to be able to contribute in some way. Um, and so figuring out that happy medium between complexity and simplicity for someone else to take a look or for someone else to understand or for any number of people to come in in the future where you might not be on a project anymore. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And what was, I guess, like the learning process or the learning curve at uh, Vertec, or I guess the first time that you did the internship, was it uh, kind of getting to know the process, understanding ladder logic? Was there some kind of a structured approach that uh, you would recommend someone with a a software background uses to maybe wrap their head around controls? Because again, I think it's, mm-hmm. I personally think like we lack individuals that come in from, again, software. And I think there's a lot of graduates that maybe miss the opportunity to see manufacturing as their career. So I'm wondering like what your perspective was and what would you say would either make it easier, I guess, like what would make sense uh, in retrospect? Uh, yeah. So for myself personally, at least it was, I ended up trying ladder logic and just playing with it for a while. And I figured out some stuff with it, but I didn't feel like I really understood how I was supposed to use it. So after probably spending two weeks just playing with it, I just went and found like a LinkedIn learning video and started at the very basics because I really didn't have a fundamental understanding of how PLCs and ladder logic worked. And everything I figured out was just trial and error watching, you know, my entire program break all of a sudden. Um, And so really understanding that while it is, code running it's a very different fundamental layer when you're working with plcs than it is for uh, more traditional software engineering um style processes and just starting at the basics and working your way up and at some point it'll click and it'll go much faster from that point because it's still you know processing code at the end of the day 
Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, and I guess if we fast forward to today, if I understand correctly, you do a lot more SCADA and maybe MES slash like data mm-hmm. application type of work. Do you find yeah, that? Yeah, I do almost. Was that yeah. like easy sorry. to, sorry, was that easy to kind of, I guess, mesh together with a more traditional software background? Um, yeah, for the most part. I mean, most of what I work in is Ignition Perspective, mm-hmm. which is very much based around traditional object-oriented programming principles, even though it's kind of got a layer thrown over the top, sound like it's, you know, all the terminology you might hear if you're reading through a textbook, um, you know, getting to that curve of just learning how some of these software platforms work at their base and then realizing, yeah, it's still, you know, still running on top of a code base that is based on object-oriented programming. Uh, it, it definitely helps soften that, that learning curve a bit. And I think it's really great, you know, from the trajectory that you've mentioned, and I think even the conversations that me and Dave have had in the past, it's really good that you've taken the time to learn the instrumentation side, because I think Mm -hmm. there's certainly a gap, at least in my mind or in the projects that I've been in, where there's a lot of people who understand maybe the lower level, how sensor data is being created, and then sort of become the experts on that side and then funnel the data to someone who then tries to understand and make sense of it. And I think that's a huge component in, uh, you know, what we're going to discuss today, but ultimately having a good understanding of where the data is coming from, how it's generated, how it's being processed from the sensors, from the PLCs, from the field devices mm-hmm. and pass down to, uh, to SCADA and MES. Yeah, for sure. Dave, do you have any thoughts? I maybe want to let you jump in with a question as well. Cause I know you've certainly done a lot of uh, your sheriff projects in that space. Absolutely, I guess. Uh, so, so Brandon, um, as we talk about kind of the work that you're doing, uh, where do you consider that, uh, or I guess, how how far are you guys drilling down comparative to maybe uh, other people who, who you went to school with, right? So if you were going to go work in, in baseball analytics, I, I assume you'd be a thousand levels deep into kind of the very, uh, very minutia of every bit of analytics and inventing new ways to figure out the speed of the ball and correlating mm-hmm. that to the actual humidity at the different levels of the stadium to watch as the ball trajectory flies, right? So um, where are you uh, with most clients, right? So, so we're talking about a modern enterprise architecture. Where do you see most clients uh, along the path of, of being able to drill down um, into their analytics? Are, are, are we, are, I guess, are we even asking the right questions to put us down the path of the, the first or second transformation of analytics in baseball? Um, I think that in a lot of cases, it's often, it's like you're putting your foot in the water kind of thing. So you're starting at those analytics, you're starting to take those traditional values you have, turn them into something that gives you a better idea or a one glance, you know, okay, it's running fine. Um, you know, a lot of that comes through some of like the OEE and whatnot. You're taking some numbers, you're making some new numbers and great. That's, you know, that's awesome. And it's, it's getting in there. Um, but it still tends to be at that surface level. You know, you're taking your data, you're doing one or two things with it. And now you have a value and cool. You're using that value to drive decision-making. It, kind of starts getting into where are we taking the the values we already have and then mm-hmm. wrapping in new pieces of information or wrapping in you know company information or whatnot where it starts to really bring out better better information and better guides to decision making and you start getting into the whole the, the predictive side of things. I think that's you you start to see a little bit, but there's still a ways to go in 
really implementing that in a full-scale system you know, across the board. And what do you see customers, I would say, like struggling with the most when they're going through, I, I want to say like a basic transformation project, mm-hmm. right? Where we're just trying to maybe get OE metrics and maybe I, w- I want to say like dabble into predictive analytics because yeah. I, I think a lot of us still are at that stage. But what do you see their, their struggle? Because I think there's many pieces to that puzzle, right? It's not only the technology piece, it's also having teams that truly understand the value that they're getting out of the the tool and then can actually act upon it to make business decisions like what are you seeing and again without obviously mentioning any specific yeah. customers I'm just I'm wondering if you're seeing any trends well I think you hit on it right there I think probably the biggest trend is bridging that gap between you know we have this data and we can make all sorts of numbers and values and predictive analytics and whatnot but what's actually going to get used? Right. What's helpful for being, you know, if it's an operator looking at some screen, I can give them all sorts of numbers, but they're not going to be helpful. Um, so finding a way to not only communicate back and forth between the, the data and the math side of things and the actual operation side of things, but also providing in a way that's easy to look at and makes sense quickly. And you're not seeing some number being like, well, that number is higher than it was yesterday, but I don't really know what that's telling me. Um, so I think that's probably one of the biggest trends I've seen so far is kind of struggling to bridge that gap and then finding ways to communicate what you want to see, right? So you might say, you know, I want, I want a way to tell if these wells are running efficiently. That's okay. I have all these numbers, but I'm not an expert in your process because you know, you're the expert. That's kind of your whole point of your job is to be an expert in that. So how do you communicate back and forth of what do these numbers mean? How can I use them to create new information that is helpful to you? Um, and having that communication in a language that makes sense to both parties, right? So we're not going to be sitting there discussing calculus or whatnot. So it's, it's finding that, that middle ground where it works for everyone. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's, there's a ways to go in that field as well. And I think that's that's a very interesting point, you know, and to be honest with you, I don't have the right answer. I think every customer is mm-hmm. unique in their own way, but I think those problems are still unsolved in the grand scheme of things, right? Is it is yeah. it the communication that's maybe not the right, or, or I guess like, is it not passed down the right way? Is it maybe the UI UX of some of the applications could be improved? Is it the data that can be like transformed in a way that the customer understands. Like there's a lot of, I, I guess, like moving pieces. And I think that's why mm-hmm. the conversation around uh, modern enterprise architecture really makes sense. And to be honest with you, the goal is to, for us at least, or for me and Dave, is to ask these questions and start conversations because I think quite a few manufacturers are looking into uh, data solutions, whether they already have something existing on the floor or something that's very basic, you know, at this point are mm-hmm. trying to upgrade and, be honest with you, I've not, uh, um, I guess I've not experienced very clear cut ways to approach this problem. Dave, any, any thoughts, maybe, maybe you want to chime in? <laughs> yes. So <laughs> I think your comment, Vlad, of, of every customer and client is different is exactly what every customer and client tells you, but mm-hmm. to the 80 to 90% level, they're all the same, right? It. It all goes, as Brandon was saying, down to how can I explain what this data means in ways that my operator or my supervisor or my general manager can take actionable, 
Nike can take action on it so that we can do what the system needs, be it we can go do preventative maintenance or we can make sure that we don't run out of raw materials uh, so that they can go through the process of doing that before something catastrophic happens and, and we shut down the line or we shut down the system for, for whatever reason. And I think that that goes to the conversation we were very much having last week, right, is, um, and I think the last few weeks, I, I think a lot of modern enterprise architecture, you have to take the psychology um, of the people that you're working with and maybe humanity into place. So I have told the story, I think I've told the story to Vlad, I don't know if I've, to I've told it on the show. Um, it, it's the story of my, my Aunt Sue, right? And, and I will preface this by saying, this is, this is kind of what I think about as I go into look at design and develop interfaces and, and data and everything else. So my aunt Sue worked at a cookie factory um, on the line for like 20 years. Um, I, I will say at the very beginning that I don't think I ever ate any of the cookies that my aunt Sue made on, on a cookie factory. Uh, she would love every time dog biscuits came around to tell us how they had to clean the, the, the line to a significantly higher extent for dog cookies than for, uh, for human cookies, right? But so, so my, my Aunt Sue is the, the person who was out there working on the line. And every year, without fail, um, I would go, I would see her. She would always have the same problem with her phone. It was always out of space in order to take pictures. Uh, yeah, in order to take pictures. So I don't know, like six years ago, I set her up on Google Photos. I set her up on like three or four different cloud hostings that all she needed to do was like, let it go ahead and automatically back up. Uh, last year uh, we, we were in town and she had nuked her last phone and she was so sad because she lost all of her photos. Well, good thing someone six years ago went and set the auto backup that she didn't trust, right? So she didn't trust the auto backup. Um, so I believe she got all of her old photos back and, and I also set her up on, on another backup service so that the next time it happens, she'll forget, but we'll be able to, uh, again, get uh, get all of the, the pictures of my uh, now slightly less than, than baby cousin. I say this because this is the sort of person that, that I think of when I go and look at a facility. She's also the person that every time I... I hate myself a little bit and pop open my Facebook feed has somehow managed to flood my Facebook feed with like posts and pictures and, and like the pictures with the, those strange backgrounds. I don't even know what we call those on Facebooks and shares and reshares everything. So as I go and look at, you know, who do we have to build systems for and what sort of intuitive systems and designs do we need? I think it's very much the, the, the UI UX of a Facebook, right? Love it or hate it billions of people know how to go ahead and use this. So we need to make things as simple as Facebook does to go through the process of sharing and to go through the process of, hey, something bad is going to happen. Go look at this. But we only give people pop-ups for really bad, like caution pop-ups for really bad things, right? Like I have worked in facilities that things pop up so often you and everyone just goes so numb that you just go start hitting the okay, 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 or the X, the X, the X. And 27 times later, no one's read it, but we have X'd out of like 27 catastrophic pop-ups. So I think, I think when we, we go through it, it's very much the psychology. It is very much contextual data is key. And to, to what you, you were saying, Brandon, I feel like it's very much one of those processes where we have to understand what's important 
to that person at that level. And what's important to the operator is probably not going to be important to the supervisor because they're supervising 10 cells. And when we get all the way to the top of the, the president or owner, I mean, the, the person probably wants to go look at their phone and see like one green dot, right? Like one green dot, yes. this facility is running. As long as mm-hmm. this dot screen, that's all that matters. <laughs> so I feel that it's very much, it it's very much, I think, lots of controls engineers, lots of people who build control systems say, hey, we've collected all of this data. We can go ahead and give them everything when at its core, less is more, right? And, and I'm not saying that we should go with green dots because th- there are lots of reasons why <laughs> colors are, are not the right thing, but less is more. And as long as it's generally within normal state and we can do all of that normal state in the upper and the lower limits uh, on the background, which we should, as long as it's in normal state, we should continue to go ahead and let the systems run as they are running. And I'm going to go back to, to the theme, like we're talking, I feel like every conversation that we've had so far this month has been surrounding how important data contextualization has been. And I think when we talked about IIoT last month, I think most of those conversations talked about how important data contextualization is. I don't know if we've necessarily got to the granular level of how important data contextualization is to so many different levels of people because what's important to Vlad is not important to Brandon, is not important to Dave. So I think that the next... Uh, the next step is allowing super users or going in and building things that are contextually important to each of those very specific groups. Yeah, for sure. And part of that is, you know, the people building the applications or I guess myself, you know, doing all the data analysis, I have my own scope of how I understand the project to be used or how I understand the system to run and whatnot. I don't have all the information or know the day-to-day business of someone who's, yeah. you know, all the way up from the president with the green dot down to an operator who wants to see only, you know, a lot of details, but just for his line or whatnot. Yep. You know, I, I don't know all of that. You know, I do my best to get as much information as I can and you run with that. But so it's, it's definitely can be a challenge of, you know, you deliver something that you think is awesome and maybe for an operator it is, but then yep. you have the the plant supervisor like, well, this is useless to me. I'm like, well, I think it's pretty cool. I, I would say kind of to, to that point, Brandon, that is that, that is very much kind of the, I don't know, maybe like the problems or the pain points I see in so many of these large scale projects, right? So you can go bid out $2 million of, of MES work and we're like, yeah, we need five screens for that and one screen for this. And we'll do like a big, uh, big 65 inch TV and everyone gets iPads. And, and when we go kind of add those things up and we're like, yeah, well, we can do it for like $2 million. And so you, you go and you, you spend a year and unless you are kind of out on the floor asking operators questions or unless kind of that last and to, to my earlier point of we can be like within 15% of, of similar, right? I think a lot of that last 15% is the customization for the people who are actually going to use the the, the machine. So I did a job um, a, a number of years ago, right? And it was very much kind of to, to what Brandon was saying is, hey, we built a screen. The HMI screen was the exact replication of what was there before. 
and at, at some point, one of the uh, one of the people that I was working with went and watched as the operator was kind of going through the screen to make sure that everything was working. And they punched like, I don't know, like 15 buttons. Right. And so you go and you ask him, you're like, why are you punching so many buttons? And whoever built the initial system set it up so that they had to punch 15 buttons. Right. The middle, like 10 to 12 were all exactly the same. They had to punch something like 15 buttons and it took them like 10 minutes every time that they were going to do this. And um, we'll make the short story seem a lot cooler than it was, but like with five minutes of programming, you just kind of stack all of those buttons, a little bit of code in the back uh, in the background, and suddenly they can punch two buttons and we can go ahead and load the machine. And that ended up allowing them to run an extra like 10 or 12% every day because we were able to kind of stack all of those buttons into, I don't know, like three lines of script script on the, uh, on the back end and made them, I don't know, like a million dollars a year because they didn't have to buy another machine at the, uh, at, at the constraints. And that's just kind of one of those examples of at some point when you're deploying things, someone kind of generally has to be there in order to ask those questions. And, and as we talk mm-hmm. about what, what modern is, right. I think the ability to go ahead and put the right data contextualization in place for the specific groups, I think that that's going to be extremely important. And I think as we talk about looking at, you know, uh, different systems and, and how we can be generally system agnostic, I think having a system and having people who have this, the scripting and other abilities to go ahead and do that on the fly Generally, like we're, we're going to step over like, I don't know, like eight levels of sign off and it's five hours of conversation because because we're going to make the story sound cool like we did it in five minutes. Right. So I, I think that that, that is that, that is the important thing, especially as we go talk about what, what the next level is. And so that that is kind of an example on the small scale. I would say an example on, on the large scale is like you go, you sit down with whoever the, the director of operations or the general manager is and you're like, what are your KPIs? And after they kind of look at you, it's kind of silly because they don't have KPIs. Maybe maybe someone walk, walks through some more, like what good KPIs would be for them to have mm-hmm. so then they could go kind of see that on their phone and uh, and be able to uh, to pull that up. But I want to ask you some uh, some questions, uh, Brandon, kind of talking about that data, maybe, maybe less so on context and more on kind of superpowers, right? So we talk a lot about artificial intelligence and machine learning um, kind of in the world, right? So, so many computer science softwares, as I'm, I'm sure you, you've at least gotten to play around a little bit, have, mm-hmm. you know, Skynet, if you will, uh, built in <laughs> at, uh, at its very core. Um, and we, we certainly talked about that in the, the manufacturing, you know, sectors and what we can do and how we can potentially leverage that. Uh, some of us, think it's very close. Some of us think it's a little bit further off because of all uh, all the, the less than glamorous uh, data cleaning that will need to happen to get there. Um, have you seen kind of any of that being leveraged? Uh, obviously, without talking about specific customers, have you, have you seen that being leveraged? Or are you seeing that being talked about? Uh, what, what's your perspective on that? I don't know that personally I've really seen it leveraged very much. It's definitely something that gets you know, it gets thrown around on the cusp of a project a little bit and it might get brought up and people might play around with it a little bit. And 
it kind of gets to that hard point though, especially when you get to just from the, the math and analysis side of things into machine learning and artificial intelligence, it almost becomes a little bit of a black box to a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it stops going from, you know, I can see how this data is going to there, to there, to there. And all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it's like, well, I have a number (laughs) or I have a trend, right? You know, you have something at the end. Um, I think that's, that's a hard bridge to get over without, you know, teaching, everyone how artificial intelligence works or how machine learning is actually getting applied. Um, I think it's always going to be a sticking point is that Mm -hmm. not only do people want information to help them make decisions, they want information, they understand where it's coming from. And if that arrow is pointing down, why is it pointing down? Mm -hmm. You know, I want to be able to fix something to make that arrow point up. Um, And so I think that'll, that'll continue to be a difficult, difficult gap to get over. Um, You know, it's, those are kind of buzzwords around technology as a whole. And you start seeing them pop up a little bit in the more of the automation industry, but I think it's still a ways to go before you're seeing people really incorporate them into larger scale applications and understand what they're getting out of it at the end. Um, Cause there is a lot of power behind it, but it's not as straightforward as a lot of other stuff. And, you know, even as someone who you know, has a fair bit of experience with it, there's still times where I look at something, I'm like, I have no idea what's happening right now. <laughs> Let me ask so you for the maybe, next three uh, hours digging through all the data and figuring it out. If I can ask a follow-up, Brandon, on that, because I think it's mm-hmm. it has certainly been brought up in a lot of projects that I've had discussions about, and I think a lot of times it would be due to you know certain plant managers or maybe like a, a global engineering team going to a conference, and I think there's going to be a lot of discussions about again artificial intelligence, machine learning, but then they kind of see again as you've said maybe what is or what is going to take and what it will kind of result in and maybe shy away from the metaphorical black box. I'm wondering, like, what is it going to take for the industry to become more accepting of those solutions? Is it going to be, again, getting more software engineers? Is it getting, like, more educated on that subject? Like, what what is your perspective on maybe getting customers who are, I, I want to say, see the potential, but are maybe scared away by the uh, the data that it may result yeah, in and the result. difficulty to manage uh, maybe some of those projects? I think part of it is having a better basis of understanding of some of the more advanced data side of things. Again, from my experience, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think it's getting to the point where we're going to be having a lot of projects coming out with machine learning as a basis in them. Um, because there's still that layer in between of having people understand you know, the advanced metric side of stuff and having that become a standard part of applications and getting used to it. And, you know, I'm taking my data and I'm making decisions off of that data and then slowly transitioning kind of up that food chain from, you know, I'm I'm getting numbers and now I'm predicting things and now I'm prescribing solutions for those predictions and stuff. And it's, there'll be a slow transformation up that chain. And I think part of that is just time and continuing to push little advancements increment by increment, as opposed to, you know, trying to find a project and push some kind of machine learning into the middle of it. And it's like, well, now I have a project with machine learning. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a really good point. Brendan, we are getting a little bit of static maybe on your side. You mind double-checking your microphone while uh, I let maybe Dave jump in on that uh, thought as well since he asked the original question. Absolutely. So I, I would agree with that, and I think that uh, that it's an interesting uh, concept, Brandon. 
Um, I guess, I guess kind of at, at the core, do you think people need to know how an algorithm works or right? Do you think people need to know what rules are that the machine learning is, is running in order to, to go through and kind of spit out answers? Is it important to know kind of each of the granular steps or at some point, do you think that there needs to be trust that we trust that the data and we trust that the people who have kind of put this together are correct and we need to kind of go walk down the path to, to test it in real life? I think Brandon is, I think Brandon well, is working. Okay. There, yeah, there he is. We'll see if that fixes it. Perfect. Um, it's much better, much better. Okay. Perfect. I think, yeah, I think that in order for the information that comes out of it to be used in a meaningful capacity, it's going to need to be understood to at least some degree. I think throwing numbers or, you know, trends or whatever the outcome of that process or analysis looks like, just throwing it at people isn't going to be helpful unless they understand to an extent of how we're getting to that answer. What's going into it? What changes that changes the outcome? Um, because that's how it's going to get applied. You know, for having some outcome that says your plan's got a 90% chance of going down in the next week, mm -hmm. you know, they want to know how are we getting there? How do we change that outcome? How do we, you know, mm -hmm. tweak things in the interim to get there? And just throwing some crazy output numbers is just, it's, it's not going to result in people get, using that. No, absolutely. And, you know, Brendan, I, I I think like to the previous point that we've made, I think we certainly all like really cool things. And mm -hmm. I would like to continue the discussion on AI and machine learning because I think it's certainly going to get to our industry, but maybe going a little bit back to, uh, <laughs> to today and what we're seeing in the current uh, manufacturing plant floor. Are you seeing... so? The conversations that we've been having range, I would say, from smaller manufacturers who are trying to implement some of these solutions, as uh, you know, we've discussed a little bit earlier, to larger manufacturers who are looking to scale or maybe perhaps integrate more sensors. They're looking to pass more data from, uh, again, there's a lot of new protocols that are, well, not necessarily new. I, I want to correct myself on that, but I think protocols that allow you to pass a lot of bits of information from, uh, from the field. But I want to maybe ask you, what are you seeing in terms of hardware or software bottlenecks on the modern enterprise architecture from, is it, you know, getting the data into your PLC systems? Is it getting that data into, let's say, cloud infrastructure, maybe on-prem service? Uh, is it perhaps cleaning that data, understanding where it's coming from? Is it processing that data? Is it then, again, sending it to the manufacturing floor so that people can get a good idea of what's going on. So just maybe a discussion around scalable, uh, or I guess I use that word fairly loosely, but hardware and software solutions that we're seeing in the plant floors today. You know, I think that even in the past few years, the software solutions have come a long ways in integrating different data sources, whatever that may be. And so a lot of it, you can you can spin up, you can connect to all sorts of different protocols and you can have your data in a few hours. You know, you get a couple ports opened and boom, it's going. Um, yeah, it's, it continues to get easier up that pipeline. The biggest challenge that I have personally found is still the data being different, right? Oftentimes, especially in enterprise architecture, you're having data from a lot of different sources, whether that be different physical locations, 
or different lines within a plant or whatnot. And it comes in and you may have the same base value. It's telling you the same piece of information, but it's a different tag name. It scales differently. It might, one's a string and one's a float for whatever reason, or, you know, one's got an X at the end of it. Or there's all sorts of things where it's, it's coming in and it's weird when you get to the enterprise level and it's often non-standardized. Um, and it kind of goes two directions of, do you tackle the standardization at, you know, often the PLC level, which means oftentimes you're going and you're updating hundreds of PLCs to make sure all their tags are exactly the same and are scaled exactly the same and are the same data type. Or are you finding ways in, they call it the data lake, you know, wherever your, your central repository, your central repositories of data is, and finding ways to tweak and change that data so you can then push it into models or pipelines or analysis or whatever it may be that you're doing down the road. Because it's always it's going to be pretty much impossible to create scalable models if you have to create a separate one for each little difference in the data. And you know, sometimes you'll work on a project and that data comes in and it's clean and perfect and you know my day is made. <laughs> I get to spend the next 10 hours just coding away at it and sometimes I get it and it's a smorgasbord and one's you know a, a Excel's workbook that gets exported once a day and one's a live data stream but it only updates once every 20 minutes or once every four seconds and uh, so finding ways to bridge that gap um, and actually Canary you know, who sponsors this has mm -hmm. come a long ways in allowing between their different platforms within Canary so they have their different modules in there of altering your data and scaling it and doing calculations off of it and creating those models and pipelines from very different sources, um, which I've used a lot in my work. And I think is finding ways to do that is a better solution than the, the updating a few hundred PLCs. <laughs> and it's, I would say that's a very good comment. I, I, again, I don't know if there is a solution or I guess like, I don't know if there's a train of thought in manufacturing to kind of converge to like a single good solution, even I would say on the standardization side, but also like on the protocol side, I think there's a lot of not necessarily disagreements, but I guess differences of views between uh, a lot of people of what the best protocol to use is. And there's certainly a lot of different protocols that can be used in my opinion to do the exact same thing. Uh, but that's, you know, that's a, that's a debate for a, a different conversation. But I think again, to your point, it's, it's very interesting. I think there's a lot of work being done in the area of trying to standardize, I want to say not just data, but also even assets, right? If you have a, a vessel of some sort, I think that vessel is always going to have some kind of a level measurement. I, I would say like, obviously I'm oversimplifying here, but ultimately just standardizing yeah. items like that, standardizing like pumps or motors, I think would go a very long way. And I'm not sure that there is a universally adopted standard. I think there's a few entities who are trying to document it better. And I think certain companies, and again, I'd be curious to hear your maybe take on this, but I think everyone's kind of trying to create their own standard. And once they create a standard, they almost want to keep it to themselves, you know, and the facilities within that company will have that standard, but it's, uh, it's interesting how I want to say our industry is progressing. You know, it's kind of, it was the XKCD comic of, you know, there's 14 standards. Let's make a standard to rule them all. And then there were 15 standards. Ah, exactly. Uh, so, I think I, yeah, part of it's just 
allowing that customization somewhere in there where if every company is going to have their own standard or if every you know business unit say solar or wastewater or whatever it may be has their own standard in there allowing your your software and your solutions to have some level of abstraction built in there where maybe you know they all have tanks or vessels but they do it a different way and my model has a tanker vessel that's coming out of the end but somewhere in there that it can map or be altered or change a little bit is a very important part of building those. Um, it's going to require some work every single time you have to change something, but it's a lot better than trying to build a single time you have a new tank added to the line. Yeah, and as I said, I'm not sure that we'll ever get to the to the perfect <laughs> world where like the physical or the mechanical aspects are also going to match the electrical aspects and then mm-hmm. match between mm-hmm. factories. But I, I certainly think that software tools are getting better. And I've, I've certainly heard the thought of being able to detect, you know, what kind of signals are coming in and, programmatically being able to, I would say, identify and add context to uh, to the tags. But I'm not sure if that's that's a dream for now or if that solution has been launched. But I think there's certainly smart people working on trying to understand that data and be able to programmatically yep. determine what, what it is. And if people can't even agree on spaces versus tabs, then how are you going to agree on a data standard? <laughs> there you go, absolutely. <laughs> And on that note, uh, before we devolve devolve into like absolute insanity here on the show and we watch uh, Vlad's brain melt out of his eye sockets, uh, we have some people to thank. Uh, as Brandon so uh, so kindly alluded to, we want to thank uh, Canary Labs and Flow Software uh, for, for sponsoring this theme and their continued support of the community. Are you serious about maximizing the value of your process data? Canary will help you historize every sensor and time series data point within your enterprise at a fair price and incredible performance. Lossless data compression, modern trending tools, and an unlimited tag model make Canary the data historian that never cuts corners. But historizing data only solves part of the problem. For super-powered analytics, you need Flow. Flow software is the analytics hub for data scientists and decision makers. With Flow, you can unify real-time, historic, and transactional data with little to no code. Finally, a single source for all your enterprise-level data queries, perfect for data scientists and the IT teams that support them. Uh, Again, we want to thank Graham and Jeff, uh, who were on episode 68 and 69, if you guys want to go ahead and check them out, um, as well as Flo and Canary uh, for supporting this theme. I think it's been a super interesting uh, and, and at least slightly different than normal conversation that uh, that we've been having this theme. I think it's been good. Again, we would love kind of your comments. Um, we've had a bunch of good support and comments uh, from the community, but to kind of get your thoughts on the modern enterprise architecture, have we hit it correctly? Should the modern enterprise architecture include, should it, should it not matter the name of the software that you're using and should it be scalable? As we've talked about, should it be easy to contextualize the data? Or is there only one correct technology stack out there? Uh, we want to hear, well, maybe not necessarily with Brandon, but we absolutely want to hear kind of everyone's thoughts uh, when, when it comes to that. Please do not hate Brandon for asking that question. Remember, if you don't like that question, it's all Vlad's fault. Ah, but uh, but no, so I, I, think, it, I think it's interesting. Um, and, and it's interesting uh, kind of the, the path that we've been going down. So, so Brandon, you, you mentioned that you do most of your work on the ignition uh, on the ignition platform. I, I know that you've only been working um, in industry for you know a, a small number of years. Have uh, 
have you had the chance to go work on some, some other uh, technology platforms that, that maybe aren't as open or as scalable to, uh, to use a bunch of those words um, as ignition? And if you are, we don't have to say that we love them or hate them or what they were, but I would I'd love to kind of get your thoughts with your computer science background mm-hmm. on how, how an ignition perspective that is open and kind of built for UX, UI designers um, and computer science folks compares to some of the other platforms. So I've not dealt much with other platforms other than essentially taking applications that are on other platforms and turning them into ignition applications. Okay. Um and even that, I don't do a ton of UX, UI. You know, I do enough to make some projects happen or to, you know, build a few screens to display data, but my role tends to be in the background. Um, just from Ignition itself, I think that Ignition is excellent at allowing you to do anything, right? The way they have it set up is I have very rarely run into something that I couldn't figure out a way to make happen in some way or another. They, they, al- okay. they give you a lot of tools And it's a pretty steep learning curve to get to the point where you're using all those tools. Mm -hmm. I think the shortcoming is that sometimes it's not the best way to do them, right? You know, it's it's built on Jython, essentially. So Java, Python, which is stripping away some of those tools. Um, There's, you know, there's there's some shortcomings and it's a very powerful engine. It's one I've enjoyed working with. There's definitely times where I'm sitting there being like, I can do this in five minutes does or something and it'd be done with but instead i'm writing this long script from scratch and i probably have some loops that aren't very efficient or something and you know you just start to introduce little things when you have to custom build everything no i i would i think that that's very valid right so Mm -hmm. one thing that i've learned of platforms especially in the industrial space here is that platforms are great in the fact that you can build anything but yeah. the detractor is you can build anything. And uh, I don't know, like I, I know m- myself and at least a number of other people who watch the show have built anything. And th- then at some point you just have this technology stack that exists only in your facility and you've got thousands of, of you know, custom scripts. And, mm-hmm. and the question, uh, the question becomes why uh, as, as um, Jeff and I talked about in the first episode, episode 68 of this, uh, when he and I were talking at the beginning of the year, which set up this episode, it was it was very much a kind of that talking of just because you can doesn't mean you should. And and he gave an example on on Canary, right? So someone wanted to kind of build in uh, generally kind of like feedback loops to to pull in historical data and kind of push it into kind of real time. Um, MES or OEE numbers, kind of something along that. And he's like, we can absolutely do this, but I see where you're going to want to go. And by doing this on this platform, you're, you're going to hurt yourself and have to go ahead and rebuild it. So I would say that that is probably one of the hardest life lessons that I've seen many people kind of forced to learn of the, mm-hmm. just because we can build everything on this doesn't mean we, we should build everything. Uh, yep. Let's go. Let's go ask Vlad for his thoughts because if if nothing else, Vlad is the person who's like, I can build this on whatever I want, and I'm going to continue to build this because I've built it. And now it's mine forever. What are your thoughts on that, Vlad? I mean, I would agree that it is a dangerous thing to uh, to do, and I've certainly gone down that path with, uh, you know, I I want to say customers wanted to build something. Uh, I'll, I'll give like one example, right? On Factory Talk View uh, Machine Edition. They wanted yeah. to build a very intricate um, process like management slash maybe uh, batch management oh, system. Glad. 
and it, uh, it it can certainly be done, right? Like, there's no, uh, I, I don't think there's like a necessary, there's necessarily a limit to what is possible, but it creates a lot of uh, very interesting things because of the limitations of the software. And I've certainly, you know, don't claim to be an expert in Ignition. I would assume that there's a lot of things that you can do, as Brendan said, and I, I think it's, I think it's a fine balance having the right conversation to maybe educate the customers who are trying to do strange things because again there there's fairly defined modules of what can be done and certainly a lot outside can be done but there's a limit i think to what uh what you should be doing and i think we had an interesting example dave uh i don't remember the the very specific like use case but i think francisco who spoke to us a number of months ago had built a almost like an employee management system on ignition yeah. mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. i think like you couldn't it's not just like the time that are tracked, but it also tracked like projects, what they worked mm-hmm. on. So I, I think you can certainly become creative, but obviously he did that kind of on his dime. Uh, but I wouldn't oh, say Vlad, Vlad, like the, the fact that it tracks like all of the, the company's kind of everything, th- that's only the beginning. What I don't think he showed you is the fact that he's they've got IP cameras that kind of are the security cameras for the facility, which are really good for customer demos. And then the really funny thing, Vlad, is when he goes and toggles on and off light switches uh, while people are trying to uh, while people are trying to do work. I, I have to assume that all of his employees know when the, the light switch goes on and off. Francisco is just in the process of uh, of doing a, a customer demo. I've gotten a laugh every time he's done it. Um, I've gotten a laugh every time he's done it. Perhaps the next time we get him on, we can have him turn on turn on and off lights from uh, from halfway across the world. But no, I, I think there are a number of companies who have done it. it it's a it, again, it's a very powerful platform. Um, but to the uh, the factory talk view machine edition, I've certainly seen lots of things built on machine edition that we shouldn't build on machine edition, right? Like. A lot of them is like, why do you do it? But, but then it goes to the, the, the question conversation of should we do it in custom code, right? And to some extent, you, you could have a, a programmer like Brandon who could go kind of rip out, I don't know, 10 lines of code and go do the thing that you want it to do. But then you have the additional technical debt of someone has to know how to use this and, and how to support it. And, and how do we go through the process of integrating it in whatever the system is? So like you can go all the way down there. I would almost say it's better to build it onto a platform or onto the software that currently exists because there's a higher probability of a chance that you know someone who does that. Like if you build custom code, you're basically paying the person who built the custom code for the rest of the time you use it to go ahead and support it. And every time it breaks, it's going to cost you however many hundreds of dollars an hour or thousands of dollars is the minimum for the service call to come out because you decided to build it. Um, so I, I guess l- l- let's go ahead and ask that, that question, Brandon, you know, as, as we talk about, you know, the modern enterprise architecture, what, what it, your perspective is very different from Vlad and I, who are going to go argue with each other, like a couple of crotchety old guys <laughs> um, about different, uh, about the correct ways to uh, to use different, uh, uh, programming softwares. Do you imagine, you know, in the last couple of years of, of your experience that 
there's going to be a platform that people build on? Do you imagine that the industrial is going to go, we're going to have a bunch of custom scripts that are pulled into a platform or pulled into, you know, databases, and we're going to go kind of pull and populate data and code that way? What, what, what do you imagine that looks like? So I think that as part of it, it's, it's always going to be a familiarity aspect to it, right? You know, you may be used to building on a platform. You may be an expert in some platform mm -hmm. and you get some task that should not be built on that platform, like a recipe management system. You probably don't want to build it there. There's, there are other platforms that are meant to do recipe management, but then there's also that, that in between of, am I going to spend two months learning a new platform so I can build this one thing? Or am I going to spend a week building it now in a suboptimal setting, have it done, and then I'll worry about the rest later. So it's going to kind of get into the tech debt part of things. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, ideally, you always find the best software for exactly what you're doing, and you implement it in, with all the best practices across the board. But that's not a very realistic expectation, given limitations of projects and budgets. And, you know, we're all busy people. We got, we got other things to get on to uh, moving towards. And so I think with Ignition, it does a, a good job of balancing that to an extent um, in that it's, it's very much meant to do some things. And then there are things you can do, which maybe there's some other stuff that's a lot better for it. And I'm sure that's a case with a lot of other platforms. You know, you mentioned it, an example with Canary. Yeah, Canary can do a lot of things. Might not be the best solution to, but it, sometimes it's yeah, let's just build this one thing. We'll add it on. We're not going to buy a new piece of software that we then have to learn. Mm -hmm. And that's good enough. But having that idea when you go into a project and you can kind of plan out where that's all going to fit makes that a whole lot easier than trying to, you're, you're tacking things onto a system that should not be supporting some, you know, can you build me a recipe management system? Oh, we're going to roll it out to all of our facilities. You're like, oh, I, mm -mm, please don't do that. <laughs> and I was certainly... Kind of my answer after you know they tried to expand that system into other lines and other facilities because it becomes you know it's one of those projects and again i think our industry certainly leans into this practice but it, this is going to be this one-off solution that we're going to deploy and that's all it's going to be mm -hmm. and then the next thing once it is rolled out they kind of see the benefits even though it's not an extremely complex solution and you get the ask of like, hey, can we put this on all of our lines and, you know, yeah. migrate this to a different facility? And obviously, as you said, there has been a, a shortcut that was taken of uh, creating this or I guess putting it together in a week rather than learning the right technology. So I, I certainly yeah. uh, can appreciate that thought. Dave, you're shaking uh, your head. I'm shaking my head. <laughs> I, 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 So I would say that Brandon's train of thought on on putting some thought behind it is in fact more thought than I've seen most people have or say out loud before they just go do the things. I, I would, I would agree that there should certainly be more thought. And I think that kind of that comes with the experience of, Hey, I've hacked together this proof of concept as a shortcut, but now suddenly they want to spend zero extra dollars and roll it out to 27 other facilities and, oh, look, Vlad did it the first time. Vlad can go travel around to the 27 facilities and, uh, and, and hack it together. It worked the first time. It must work for the, uh, the next, you know, thousand machine editions that, uh, that, that we're going to, uh, to put it on. And so I would agree. And hopefully we as an industry become better realizing and, and having that forethought of saying, yes, you know, we could do this as a proof of concept. 
but beyond a proof of concept, you know, these are the things that we need to do if we're going to go expand it out. And having gone through it a number of times gives you the ability to, to what? Ha having gone through it a couple of times gives you the ability to understand and figure out kind of what those next steps could become. I, I say that with the honesty of telling you that every time you, you go kind of try to explain this to a customer that you're going to go roll out X as a proof of concept and that if we want to roll it out, it's going to cost money. None of them are ever going to be happy to go pay the money, but at least you can hopefully hopefully set the project up for success uh, when, when it comes to, to that. So Brandon, let me uh, let me kind of continue the conversation um, and and ask you kind of all of the questions that uh, that we ask everyone else. So th this is the point in which I get to to ask you to go ahead and predict the future. So what do you think? I mean, we've talked about lots of different topics. What do you think that the future of industrial data is going to look like? Are we going to go through these Moneyball and Beyond style transformations? Um, are we going to find better ways to hack together uh, Vlad's batching and recipes on software that uh, that doesn't uh, that we shouldn't be using? Uh, what is the future of that going to look like? You know, I think we'll go through, as you called it, the, the money ball transformations. I think it'll be a lot slower in this space, um, partially because, you know, things work right. You know, in, in some process or plant it's working already. We don't need to do too much to mess with it and mess up a process. Um, and so I think it's always going to hold back that innovation to an extent, right? That's not saying in a bad way. It's saying uh, we have something that works. We need to keep that thing working the whole time. We can't rip it down to studs and rebuild it from scratch and try to all these cool new technologies. Um, so I think it will always be a little bit of a limiting factor, but even just in the three or so years that I've really been working on it. It's you're already seeing it start to get added a little bit more to projects, people asking more educated questions about it, trying to figure out ways that it can provide additional value. And so I think we'll continue to see that if it ever gets to the point where every project has machine learning built in as a part of it, unlikely, or maybe at least enough before the time I'm retired. But <laughs> I think, I think we'll get there step by step. And I think you'll start to see some really cool projects come out where if there's some really cool analysis or data or, you know, math that goes into the back end of it that can do some really cool things and provide good value. And that's a really interesting perspective. You know, I've not really thought about this in depth, but there's certainly industries that are, I would say, like more advanced than others and have, I would say, better tech. And I want to say also better business margins so that they can experiment with these technologies. And perhaps mm -hmm. it's possible that there's already, at least I've not seen it personally, but perhaps there are solutions that are quite a bit more advanced than, you know, than what I've seen in, uh, in food and beverage, especially because of, uh, I want to say how secretive slash intellectually protected are uh, manufacturing companies, right? So behind closed doors, yeah. it's possible that there's quite a bit more tech than what we see. And I, I think to your point also, it's going to be interesting to see how quickly it will proliferate outside of, uh, I, I want to say like, I want to see how long it's going to take before that, IP leaks out to uh, other manufacturers, so to speak. That's that's a very mm -hmm. interesting point. It'll only take agree. a few cases of something really working well before everyone's trying to copy it, but you got to get those cases where it works well and people know about it. Yep. yep. Absolutely. And I would say kind of uh, to, the, to that point, uh, Brandon, 
I don't think that there is like we, we don't have a world series of manufacturing to win, right? Like <laughs> one really rich person can't take a can't take a bit of a gamble, go win a world series, and now everyone else mm-hmm. is trying to copy them. There is to some extent that that you know intellectual property. I don't know. Maybe next week, Vlad and I are going to talk about the World Series of uh, of manufacturing. That uh, that that could be something. That could be something interesting. Um, yeah. Well, as I continue to think about the the World Series of manufacturing, as 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 I'm now calling it, Brandon, uh, we we uh, we always like to uh, to ask for a book or other piece of content. Uh, recommendation are you reading anything are you watching anything um, either manufacturing related or, or something else that, uh, that you really like uh, that you care to share I'm actually going to bring in two if that's okay Ooh. so the first is a book called prediction machines um, so it's not a very technical book but it does provide an excellent overview of kind of how some of the artificial intelligence machine learning things are applied in easy to grasp examples, right? So it's not telling you about the math of how some neural network is working, but it's saying, Mm -hmm. here's how it's been applied in real life. Here's kind of the the outcome and trying to allow people to wrap their head around it in things that make easy sense. Um, And so it's a pretty easy book to read. It's, I think, co-written by three different authors. Um, So I'd recommend that. The other is a little bit more uh, specific, but it's called the book. It's playing the percentages in baseball. and again, doesn't require a ton of baseball knowledge. If you know what a what the goal of a baseball game is to score runs, then you can probably read this book. But it it does a great way of contextualizing math and data and statistics for something that you can see and understand. Right? People know kind of what a baseball game looks like, but here's the math that's going on in the background and thinking probabilistically as opposed to you know it either worked or it didn't. But there was a seventy percent chance of this working. Um, mm-hmm. And can help you frame that in a way it's it's pretty easy to grasp. What's the title again of the second book, Brandon? Please. It's called the book playing the percentages in baseball. Vlad, are you a baseball fan? I am not a baseball fan, but I've certainly watched Moneyball multiple times, and I can certainly appreciate the <laughs> analytics behind the sport. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. L- let me ask you a follow-up. Uh, baseball analytics uh, question, Brandon. Do you think that baseball is more enjoyable knowing that, I, I don't know, we're going to go squeeze in the, the bottom of the 10th um, with, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to go squeeze in the bottom of the 10th and there's a 72% chance that it's going to work uh, against this pitcher and this catcher. And uh, is, is that more enjoyable for you? Do you think it adds value to the game over the fact of, hey, you know, going and yelling at the uh, going and yelling at the uh, the TV while it's late at night? You guys should uh, you guys should squeeze. But is it more enjoyable knowing the, the numbers and the percentages? Is that an is that an adder to uh, to baseball if you're going to go watch it on ESPN or Fox or or anything like that? Oh. We, we lost Brand, we lost Brandon's audio. I guess that answers my question. And that was the end in which Brandon decided that he was done talking about baseball analytics with a guy named Vlad and, uh, and a guy named Dave. Oh, 
let's see if uh, let's see if Brandon makes it back. But I guess as we're waiting for Brandon to get back, I, I've always found it interesting, right? Thinking about the the amount of data that has to get crunched, and it's been an interesting conversation with Brandon as we talk about kind of uh, what that parallels may or may not look like into uh, into manufacturing, and if there will be similar data revolutions to uh, to what has happened in Vlad's now brand new most favoritist movie, uh, Moneyball. Have you watched more or less baseball since you've watched uh, Moneyball a few times, Vlad? Um, to be honest with you, I've not watched more baseball, but I've certainly learned through that movie to appreciate the sport a lot. Because again, mm-hmm. I did not know that there was such an intricate way. And I mean, like I understand, you know, fantasy sports and how that's all structured, but I did not know that there's such granularity in the analytics. And I've certainly gone down the path of researching a little bit more about uh, the stats that are pulled uh, from various sports and, you know, to the conversations that we've been having today and throughout any, I want to say like data analytics, I think that manufacturing is certainly headed in, uh, in that direction, maybe to bring the conversation back to mm-hmm. our field. And I think there's certainly a lot of opportunities. I, oh, I can only hope, you know, we had this conversation with Brandon on our prep call last week, but I can only hope that manufacturers would almost take I don't want to say moonshots, but I want to say like educated guesses where they would hire someone like Brandon to kind of decipher data and kind of look for new opportunities. Because I think we are certainly, uh, at least in my experience, very careful in um, the initiatives that we are allowed. And I think that experimentation will allow us to kind of better figure out what is possible. And I I've certainly have a lot of ideas. Me and you, Dave, have talked about this many times. And I think even on the shows, we've kind of tossed in a few thoughts of how can we improve uh, manufacturing operations. But I, I think it'd be interesting to see uh, what could uh, work. Agreed. I would, I would agree with that. It looks like we are, <clears throat> we are getting Brandon uh, back as Brandon is connecting to uh, the audio. We will, uh, we will ask everyone to go ahead and drop their favorite baseball team in the comments, and then we'll see if Vlad knows where the baseball teams are from, which which is always one of my most favorite uh, things to do with with Beth. She she goes and she finds a shirt or something, and she she likes the logo or it's a really good deal on a, a Nike something or other, and so she goes and picks it up. And so we always play the game on where is this team from and what's the sports league. So maybe maybe at the beginning of next week's episode, uh, we'll force Vlad to uh, to guess where the baseball teams are from. Uh, and it looks like we are getting uh, Brandon back what what are your thoughts on that Vlad well I was gonna say as Hank mentioned uh you know quote unquote Vlad isn't a baseball fan since the Expos left Montreal and that might be the case right it's not as easy to go see a a game in person now that I am back to uh to Canada so it's uh it certainly has had an impact I guess on my uh maybe ability to go live because I can certainly appreciate the live atmosphere of sports but I think uh Watching it is not the same appeal, at least not for me. But then, do you do you root for an LA team, Vlad? Um, I guess not in uh, not in baseball. Not in baseball. <laughs> oh, not in baseball, Hank. You're gonna have to work on Vlad. Maybe <laughs> uh, maybe we get maybe we take uh, Vlad to a single A baseball game. It'll either be the highlight of his summer or the worst four hours he has ever spent anywhere, which is generally how I define uh, <clears throat> single through triple A. Uh, baseball 
But it, lo- it looks like uh, Brandon is slowly coming back. If you guys uh, hang on a moment for us, I think we had some technical difficulties on uh, on one side. Uh, but uh, but but what what is your thoughts, Vlad? Do you think that do you do you think that we're going to go start collecting more data and we're going to leverage this data in the Moneyball style as, as we were talking about, or do you think that something will have to happen um, in manufacturing for, for that to happen? Um, well, look, as I've mentioned a couple of times, I think there's going to be debates between a lot of individuals, you know, in our space and what methodology we, sh- we should use in approaching data. My, I want to say, a belief is that we should collect as much data as possible because we can later on always be able to contextualize and Obviously, it's not an easy exercise, and I I maybe am making it uh, a little bit or, or make it sound a little bit easier than it, what it is in reality. But I think if we collect the data, if we throw it at a database right now and we're able to store it somewhere, again, obviously, the more context you can provide, the better. But I think down the road, as solutions are made possible, it's going to be difficult to uh, to catch up to them without maybe reworking the infrastructure. And I certainly. I've said this on a call that we've had, Dave, I believe last week or the week before that, I think that any new initiative that is being rolled out across like manufacturing floors should certainly be managed in a way that you should be able to collect, at the very least, be able to connect the data, right? So establish the right network infrastructure, hardware and software so that it's at the very least possible to funnel that data should it become needed, right? And obviously, I would go a step further and funnel the data uh, where it is needed so that in the future it can be used uh, for a solution. But uh, throwing that question back at you, Dave, what are your thoughts? What uh, what maybe what approach do you uh, usually navigate to in your projects? So I think collecting data is good. I think it's important. I when I go look at a project, um, I, I guess lots of times I, I have people who, when we talk about collecting data, they're like, I want to collect everything. And, yep. and every time, every time one everything. of those, I, I know Vlad, and I, I laugh every time you say that, just like I laugh every time I have a client who says that, because them saying that they want to collect everything means that they have no idea what's important or what they want to collect. So uh, that's kind a true of, statement. Of, I, I don't think anybody knows. Like for a hundred percent, what's important, right? But Vlad, I would be happy if like people knew like seventy-five percent of what they want to collect and, and why they want to collect. So generally, I have lots of clients who say we want to collect everything, and most of the time, like we get five steps into a project and their data and what they think is important is a complete mess, and it's a mess because they don't know what's important, right? So typically, when, when I look at collecting data. I want to understand what is important. Like, could we in theory end up collecting quote unquote everything on a project? Absolutely. But before we just say, let's go pull every tag at one tenth of a second um, and collect every bit of information we can get that and throw that into a time series database, I want to be able to have a good idea what it is that we want to collect, right? So Hmm. if there is some sort of MES, that we are looking to uh, to go ahead and put together, 
or or otherwise, like we should be able to take a look at that. Uh, we, we briefly talked about KPIs. Uh, I've talked about KPIs a, a lot um, just in the course of my, my life. Like gener- So generally speaking, we should know what a organization wants to do. They should have measurable KPIs that we can go ahead and trend and track. And at least some number of those should be leading, right? So, so they, they should be showing us what the future looks like. And we should go put those together or have a discussion as to what those look like. And then we can put together the correct data for that. And I have found that if we spend time talking about what KPIs are and what they should be and what data we need for that, then organizationally, there's a much higher probability of succeeding when we go down the path of collecting data so that the data is clean so that someone like Brandon five years from now doesn't have to go curse Dave and Vlad for just saying, yeah, let's collect everything, but let's not contextualize it or, or scale it or do anything. Let's just pull junk data in at one tenth of a second, uh, dump it into a time series database. Someone like Brandon has six months of his life five years from now in, uh, in order to be able to, uh, to go ahead and do that. Uh, but uh, but welcome back, uh, Brandon. Uh, I, I hope everyone was enjoying. Uh, Vlad and I were divulging into uh, into the form that we normally take at some point very late at night or some point very early in the morning, uh, where we uh, where we talk about this. But um, I want to ask you kind of the next question that we ask everyone, Brandon. Like we love to hear career advice, and we have certainly talked to many groups who are, are looking to hire, right? They're looking to hire people that have a computer science degree and have somehow managed to trip into this is what ladder logic is um, and this is what programming is. So I, I guess I would love kind of kind of two pieces of career advice uh, from you is, you know, first, if you're talking to a, a, a new graduate, let's say a new computer science graduate or someone uh, looking to get an internship, uh, do, do you have a piece of a career advice uh, for them, whether get into manufacturing or, or go run away and uh, you don't have to join uh, Dave and Vlad at some point on a live show? But I guess, do you, have a, do you have a piece of career advice for them? Yeah, for sure. I think the biggest one is especially pertinent when I came out of college and started working. It's kind of understanding what you don't know. Right. You come out of college, you, you think you've now been educated, you have all this knowledge and stuff. It's you're just you're touching the tip of the well. So part of that is you come out, just understand that you don't know a whole lot of things and that's perfectly fine and just be willing to learn. Um, that'll, that'll go a long ways towards smoothing everything else out in your career. I love that. Uh, and then I guess kind of as a second second kind of follow up from, from a different angle. Right. So we, we talk mm-hmm. to a lot of people. I would say. I don't know, one in two are, are looking to hire. Um, do you have a piece of advice, I guess, from, from your perspective as a relatively new computer science graduate, what can employers do to become employers of choice for computer science or computer engineering graduates who maybe or maybe not know about you know this industrial manufacturing world we live in? How can they become attractive employers? Yeah, so I think part of it is kind of a a general standpoint of as far as being an attractive employer is be authentic. It's it's kind of a a lame word to an extent, but if you go in an interview and they're asking you textbook questions or, you know, things you can look up on the Internet, those interviews blur together. It's not going to feel like a place that's really drawing you. And part of what drew me to Vertec when I started is, you know, I I like brewing beer. 
like half the interview, we talked about brewing beer and my process for that. And I probably told them stuff about me and, you know, I was, I'm pretty meticulous in the way I take notes and measure things and everything. And, but it was also a very unique interview experience. Um, and that is going to be your first impression. So you're looking at a company website, they all kind of look the same. You're not drawing a whole lot from that. So it's your, it's that face-to-face interaction. Um, and then just showing off some of the cool stuff you do as a company, right? That's, if it resonates with someone, then it's, it's going to be a good fit. Um, trying to explain everything you do or hand out some brochure is not going to give a great idea of this is what we do. This is what we've done. Here's the cool things that we've built. Yep. Do you want to build stuff like this? I like that. I, I think that that is something that we have talked about a number of times is I will call it like general marketing, right? Like showing off who you guys are, or, uh, who the company is as an organization is, is very important and for a variety of reasons, NDAs notwithstanding, we don't show off all, most of the cool stuff that uh, most of the cool stuff that yeah. we build. Most of the time, it's I don't know, eleven o'clock at night, and you're at a bar at a conference, and you're talking about all the cool applications that you built, and then the person next to you tells you about the the, the cool, very similar application. You realize that you've both been going down a very similar path, and it probably would have made everyone's lives easier if uh, if someone had talked about uh, if someone had talked about that. But no, I would agree. Showing off cool stuff absolutely important. And then uh, last question that we have for you uh, here, Brandon, is is who should reach out to you? You know, who do you want to connect with? Um, who do you want to talk to? Is is Vertec hiring? Do you want to go kind of talk about that? This is kind of an an open platform for who should reach out and who should talk to you. So Vertech is hiring. I don't know the exact positions off the top of my head because I'm not the HR guy, but if you go to our website, I'm sure they're listed on there somewhere. (laughs) And our hiring manager probably appreciates the shout out. Um, (laughs) As far as who to reach out to me, I'd say anyone who's not familiar with data and wants to kind of get their foot in the water. A lot of coding data stuff can be a little bit scary. There's a lot of terminology. There's a lot of things that, you know, look a little bit like magic, they're really not that complicated, but it does take a bit to, to get into it and understand, you know, what's the right, whether it's the right coding language to learn or the right application to use or the right data structures and that kind of thing. You know, having someone who's had a little bit of experience and can help guide that can, can shorten that learning curve quite a bit. So I Absolutely. think my LinkedIn is linked through the stream or whatnot. Feel free to reach out. Yep, the uh, the LinkedIn is linked to the stream. We will make sure to have all of that in the uh, in the show notes as well. But uh, but no, I think this has been a very interesting show. Uh, I think it's been a great way to uh, to end the theme, talking slightly more on the on the practical side of the data and the contextualization, and and hopefully convincing everyone that you shouldn't collect all pieces of data without context because Brandon really doesn't want to be doing uh, data cleansing uh, basically for the the rest of his entire career. So. The next time you think, what should we collect? The answer is everything without context. I want you to think of Brandon's face or or imagine Brandon's face uh, crying if you're listening in podcast form. And don't do that. Don't be that person. Uh, Brandon, future Brandon and future everyone uh, thanks you. But, But no, this has been amazing. Again, thank you, Brandon. Thank you, everyone, for listening. 
If you are listening in podcast form, uh, please feel hit. Please feel free to hit the subscribe button. Uh, please go rate us five stars everywhere you can uh, rate us five stars. I think it's Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Audible. I think there are like three of you who listen on Audible, which is a platform that I didn't really know exists in uh, in podcast form. But but good news, it does because their data analytics tells us um, <laughs> that it does. But but please feel free to go ahead and subscribe there and rate us five stars. Um, we will be in your ears. Uh, Basically every Thursday for uh, for the rest of Vlad's life because I don't think he is uh, he is going to be able to get out of this. If you want to learn more, please feel free to check out manufacturinghub.live, where we've got all of the guest profiles, all of the videos, all of the audio format. And until next week, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, everyone. Yep. Appreciate it.